You can see from the banners to my right and left that we are in a new sermon series this morning entitled The Movement. This is, uh, we'll be here for 10 weeks studying the missionary journeys of Paul in the book of Acts and kind of seeing what the, how the Lord speaks from that into the life of our church and, and what we're doing. And we'll begin this morning in the 13th chapter of Acts. So if you want to turn there, if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats with you, it's page 776. Uh, in a in a flying in a fighter squadron, when you you're briefing up a mission, you never fly by yourself. You almost always fly with a wingman, like a two ship, is what you would call that, or maybe four of you, a four ship, two, three, or four, but almost never by yourself. And when you're briefing your flight, there is this portion of the brief that we call the motherhood. I don't know why it's called the motherhood. I. I don't think anyone knows why. It's some ancient thing, I guess. But it's called the motherhood. And the motherhood is a brief, brief, a short brief, um, dealing with the routine elements of the mission. So it's, it's a short, truncated kind of way of touching all of the routine things that you have to do in order for you to uh, get to the part of the sortie where you're actually doing the mission. So the flight is not about the takeoff, but you have to take off. But we don't want to talk about the takeoff because we do that a lot, and it's easy. So you, you, know, you have to talk about it, but you don't want to belabor it. And we take all of those routine elements, and we kind of put them in this, this five- to seven-minute brief up front called the motherhood. And that's what you call it. And in the motherhood, we have what's called squadron standards. And every element of, every routine element of the flight, we have kind of our squadron's perspective on what is standard about that. And it's described, so, a, a, you know, a, for two aircraft to line up on the runway, um, it should look like this. And that way, during the motherhood brief, the flight lead can go, Runway lineup standard, any questions? And you're done. Because we both have studied the standards, and we know what's standard, and that way we can kind of breeze through. So it will sound like this. It will sound like pre-flight is standard. Check-in, taxi, marshalling, arming is standard. Takeoff is two-ship standard, 15 seconds to route. En route, standard formation. We'll get there, fence trigger check, cold trigger check, get the altimeter, get on the range, clearance standard. Any questions? And they'll say, no, sir. And what I've just told you is, you know, he better say no, sir. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, he, that's a time for him to ask questions. And sometimes if it's non-standard, I'll, well, I'll say two-ship takeoff will be non-standard, 20-second trail, instrument trail departure. Questions on that? Now, when I say instrument trail departure, there's a standard for that. And so, you know, that's understood. But nonetheless, it's a quick way. And what I just, that little lineage I just gave you got us from walking to the airplane all the way to getting to the restricted airspace about to push the button. Is that, is that quick? And we do the same thing on the way to get home. Recovery, we'll fence out, battle damage check, return home, standard routing, overhead, full stop, back in for debrief. Any questions? He'll say, no, okay, motherhood. Any questions? No. And then you'll say, okay, here's what we're going to do today. 
And you'll start talking about the mission. But the motherhood is, is just a way of kind of basketing up all of the routine elements of a mission. And, you know, it will almost necessarily not be all standard. Invariably, what you brief is one thing and what you actually do is another because you walk out and the weather's worse or there's a maintenance delay or there's one thing or another where you would, in the flight you deviate from it. But, but the standard elements of the motherhood brief are what usually happen most of the time. Well, in this sermon series called The Movement, we are examining the kind of the intentional, strategic, missionary work of, of God in the New Testament. This is, this is, we're studying the movement of the church as it begins to kind of strategically push through the Mediterranean. And it becomes not just a movement in the Mediterranean, it becomes the most significant movement in the history of the world. And it's happening intentionally, which is a little different than a sermon series we did last year. Last year, in the spring, we did the scattering. You might remember that, the scattering. And the scattering actually was the preceding chapters. We're, we're picking, off, picking up, essentially, right where we left off a year ago. But in the scattering, what that was, that was the Lord kind of doing a missionary work through people, but it was the impetus of the Lord, and it was very often quite accidental by Christians. In other words, it wasn't though that, as though the church in Jerusalem said, wow, we need to really take this message and take it out to the surrounding cities. They, they didn't do that. They were, they were in Jerusalem, and a great persecution broke out. And there was this line, this verse, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. And what ended up happening is, is when they were scattered through persecution, remember, like quicksilver, they spread across the land, and they began to preach and teach the gospel faithfully, and that's how people began to come to Christ. But it wasn't as though there was ever a game plan. That was never the brief. That was never the mission. That was just, it was the Holy Spirit determined to spread the word of God through the personal lives of individuals. And that's so, that's when you learn of people like Philip in Samaria, and Philip with the Ethiopian, and Peter, and, and the conversion of Saul. All of that's happening during the time of the scattering. Well, when you get to this section of the book of Acts, something has changed. It's, not, it's no longer an earthy, grassroots, organic, one-on-one kind of scattering. It actually becomes a movement. That starting now, the church of Jesus Christ says, we have a job to do. And it steps forward to do that. And there will be, it'll look different. Each time it'll look different. But there are basic elements, basic missionary elements in the text that are generally the same most of the time. And this morning's text in Acts 13 is, is one of those kind of classic uh, sketches of the basic elements. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at kind of the motherhood of the movement is what we'll be looking at here in the 13th chapter of Acts. And so I'll begin, but I'm going to just read one verse in chapter 25. It's the 25th verse. Give a little bit of background, and then we'll press ahead. This is what verse 25 says. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. What had happened in the life of the church 
Uh, this is kind of where we are in, in the book of Acts. Uh, Saul has been converted in Damascus. So if you're just wondering, like, is he a good guy or a bad guy? He's now a good guy, but he's still going by his bad guy name. Uh, the book hasn't quite leaned over yet on that. Okay? And he's also not uh, taken his kind of, uh, not leading status as far as kind of a real leader in the missionary effort. Okay? He hasn't actually gone on mission yet. So, but that's happened. Another thing that's happened, in case you're trying to figure out where you are in the book of Acts, is the Gentile community has been admitted into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That was kind of a, a, a real climax or crisis in the earlier section of this book was, um, do you have to kind of be indoctrinated into the Jewish system before you can come to faith in Jesus Christ? Or if you're outside of that system, does your faith in Jesus Christ allow you to bypass the ritual? And the church has finally come to agreement on this. The church has said, that the apostles in Jerusalem have said, we recognize that the Holy Spirit can lead unto conversion those who are Gentile. And therefore, we, we, that's kind of them owning now the mandate to say we're responsible for a movement. And where we are right now is uh, Saul and Barnabas are returning. They, there was a great famine in Jerusalem. The church of Antioch gathered money. They sent Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to bring money because of the great famine that was there. And they're returning home. And this is where we pick up. And I'm going to read the first three verses. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, let's stop there for a second. There's, a, there's, there's, there's three elements of kind of the motherhood, if you, if you uh, want to call it that, that are kind of at work here. And the first one is in the first phrase of the 13th chapter. It says, in the church at Antioch. And I'll say, as a general rule, the first thing we should know about missions is that it begins at church. It begins at and in church. It is the church that raises up missionaries and Christians. It's the church where people who get a missionary heart are kind of uh, live out their Christian lives and experience the Holy Spirit and experience the fellowship of, the, of believers and, and experience the transformation. It's generally in church. It's, it's church that bears the ultimate responsibility for miss, the missionary effort across the world. We have a denomination and we have agencies and they help and they're good but it is the responsibility of the church. So these agencies that are there, they're good and they help to equip and they help to teach and they help to educate and empower and, and take care of, but it is the, it's the church, these local churches where the Spirit is moving to, send, to raise up and to send missionaries. And there is no special missionary church. I grew up when there were, there were Baptist churches and there were missionary Baptist churches. And I kind of grew up in, in an array of all of these. 
There is no such thing as missionary church. Church should be missionary. This, uh, we're, in, we're in an age, especially the younger people get, where they, they kind of decry the division that's come about in the Protestant church based upon denominationalism. Right? We, uh, we are increasingly... Uh, denominationalism is less useful or seen in a less positive light as the years go on. And there is... I'm just describing the vibe I hear among the church, that there is a general sentiment of, wouldn't it be great if we could all worship together in one in spirit? That that is... That's a trajectory. And I affirm that. I affirm that. This idea, this, this ecumenical heart towards all of us being one in Christ. Right? I mean, that, that's good. But, and, I, and I affirm that. But what I'm saying is, is when we do that, we are in fact, right, when we feel that way, we are in fact admitting that the church should look fairly homogeneous. In other words, we can't say, well, they do missions... And we do this. That doesn't sound like we're one in Christ. The church of Jesus Christ does missions. And that's where it starts. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing, and it's in this verse. uh, Verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. The second idea about, about the movement of God is that this movement or the mission begins with the Spirit's calling. It's a living reality. It's not a mechanical system. There isn't a program that makes missionaries. There's not a system that makes missionaries. It's the Holy Spirit that works through people, that sends people, and makes people part of this movement. It's when people pursue God. What, what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord and they're fasting. It's when people earnestly pursue the Lord that He brings them into this movement. That they become incorporated into this movement. When it's your mission to find God, you don't be surprised if you wake up and find yourself on mission. That's, that's just how it works. When, when you're after the Lord, He's going to bind you into the movement of God. And, and that's, that's how it works. We have programs and we have mechanisms, but... They are not what is doing it. What's doing it is the Holy Spirit working itself out through the church. And I will say this as, as a sidebar from the text. So on my points, this is 2A. Um, I've never had a 2A. Um, I, I, this is ex- I would say expect the movement to begin with the leadership. If you look here in the text, all of these people are leaders. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. They're all leaders. And I would say, in a, in a healthy church, God is typically going to start these things through the leadership of the church. Why would he want to undermine the very people he's appointed as shepherds? And that's just typically how it works. Missions begins with the movement of the Spirit. And then there is a, there's a third principle that's at work here. In the third verse, so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Missions is formally recognized and supported by the church. They're set apart. There's a recognition of laying on of hands, similar to what happened this morning. There's a, there's a sending and a losing, and it's formal. The, we could say this. The mission of God is have, it happens 100 million times a day in 100 million different ways. It's always happening. And there's this, 
this truth when we talk about um, kind of roles and calling that, that I can on any given Sunday say, you're all missionaries. And there's a truth in that, right? All of us have some kind of ownership of the Great Commission. So in a sense, we're all missionaries, just like we're all ministers, right? Just like we're all priests, just like we're all saints. There's, there's kind of a ubiquitous nature about these things, but there's also a specific role, right? We are all ministers, but I'm a minister. And there's a difference, and we know it. And it's the same thing with missionaries. We're all missionaries, but then there's missionaries. In this case, what you see is the church is formally setting aside, setting apart individuals for a specific work of the kingdom. They're laying hands as recognition before the Lord. Lord, we, we are in line with your will, and we're sharing in that in the sending of this person onto mission. That's, and I guess what I'm saying is, is there's actual scriptural justification for a dyed-in-the-wool, paid 501c3 missionary. It's right here. We're all missionaries, but then there's, there's missionaries. Missions is formally recognized and supported by the church. All right, this is kind of the motherhood of how missions starts. It starts in the church by the Spirit working through people who are pursuing the Lord, and the church recognizes the calling of God on people's lives. They lay hands, they send out, and, and that's how missions, that's the impetus behind how missions goes, how it goes into the world. Now here's how it kind of happens. Let's read a little bit. Chapter 13, verses... Four and five. Speaking of Barnabas and Saul. By the way, it's so early in the ministry of Paul that he's still called Saul and Barnabas' name comes in front. The, the, the writer Luke actually recognizes Barnabas was a more prominent Christian at this time. And as in, it's in our sermon series, by the way, that what you'll see is that it'll go Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, Paul and Barnabas. It, it'll do that. And Luke just uses that. His pen is very wise in the way it kind of progresses there. But anyway, here in verse 4, the two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. That's John Mark. John was with them as their helper. The, the, the kind of the lesson that's here and a starting point for missions after you've been sent out from the church is kind of encapsulated in this last part of verse 5 when they preach the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. The movement uses sensible starting points as a way of proclaiming the gospel that... that when, when we go on mission, we, when we participate in the movement of God, we are looking for sensible, obvious starting points where our, the language, we have some kind of recognizable language. And I don't mean that like from a purely linguistic perspective. I mean that more in the sense of if you're on mission, you're trying to find a point of commonality. That means if you're a super buff athlete, you're going to be like a Fellowship of Christian Athletes missionary. If you're a professional baseball player, you're going to go be a missionary through UPI. If we just look for those kinds of things. 
if you grew up in East Africa, you might be drawn to East Africa to do missions. We, 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 do the, we, we find sensible starting points. In other words, we're not trying to make it intentionally difficult. It's difficult. It's already difficult. We're, we're trying to find these, these places where, where we already have some kind of match, some kind of commonality. And there's, there's another side of this, that, uh, of finding a sensible starting point, is when you go, when, we, when, when the movement kind of goes outside of the walls of the church, it's healthy for it to look and to try to find places where there is al- already the Lord is at work. Find where the Lord is at work and kind of join into that. There's a myth, and, and nobody ever says it, but I think we believe it. And I may have even said it. There's kind of a myth that's at work in the life of the church which says, outside these walls, it's dangerous, people. It's so dark out there. There's no light whatsoever in the world of the lost. That's just not true. It's just not true. Think of it this way. If people are pursuing the Lord in the life of the church, and the Holy Spirit speaks and says, set them apart for the work I have for them, and if they could sense and there's a recognition by the church saying, God, we're stepping out on faith, but we believe you and we love you and we desire that your word would be known and we, just, we want to be part of this movement. And if you send people out, do you not think that God is already at work where we're going? There's already some light. I'm not saying it's full, the full light of conversion. I'm saying that God's already there and there's already starting points. There's, this way I think about it, I've thought about it all week this way, is if you ever go camping, you campers will know this. Sometimes you arrive at your campsite late, the sun is down, it's pitch black, but you want to build a fire so that the wolves don't eat you. You always feel better with a fire. So uh, in order to build your fire, you grab your little mag light and stick it in your mouth, and you do your work, like to build your fire. And soon enough, you get the fire going and you turn the flashlight off. That's all we're doing. It's the movement of God is go find a little bit of light to build a fire. And you build the fire kind of underneath that light, and then pretty soon the fire is the light. That's, that's what they're doing. Paul and Barnabas are going to the place that makes the most sense. Who knows the word of God? Who knows the promises of God? Who has the holy scriptures? Where are they well-versed and have a language? Paul Saul is a Pharisee and a rabbi. He can walk into a synagogue and they say, Brother, stand up and tell us a word from the Lord. What a great starting point for a missionary. That's what we need to do. Find find common starting points, sensible starting points for the movement of the kingdom. All right, and this is what happens. Then they traveled the whole island, through the whole island until they came to Paphos. That's the, so they started on the east side and they went all the way across the island of Cyprus to the west coast. If you had your map, you'd see that. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul was an intelligent man sent for Bar- Uh, who, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. 
you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Now, I, I, I want to take a, just a, a second to, to talk about some, some things in the text um, that I think are, are, are worth attending to. So, a bar Jesus is son of salvation. When Paul counters him, he calls him what? He says, you're the son of the devil. There's this, the apostle's kind of bringing out an irony. He's saying, like, you think you're the son of salvation, but in fact, you're kind of the son of wickedness. And then he does this, and I'm just saying this because it's kind of ministered to my heart this week. Paul, the way Paul uses the power of the Holy Spirit is he subjects to this man the very same converting motion that happened to him in Damascus. And I've, I've just have been so attracted to that, that in my heart I even wonder if, if Paul's intent is that Elimus would be converted. Remember, Paul was struck blind, and when he was blind, he finally could see. And that's kind of how he came to the Lord. And there's this, Paul says to him, you're going to be blind for a time. So there's this sense of for a time, you're blind. And I just wonder, even in the heart of Paul, if this is evangelism at its strongest moment. It's just sitting in the text. I just wanted you to see it. But this pattern from 6 to 11... Oh, and I, I, did I finish reading? Did I read all the way through 11? I should, I should, sorry, sorry about that. Let's read 11 and 12. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now, what we just saw is a classic pattern. You're going to see this repeated over and over and over again, not just in the text of Acts, but in the history of the church, and the life of our church, and the future of our church. It's ha- what happens when we engage in the movement. When, when, the, when we're seeking the Lord in the church, and the Spirit works through those, and, we, and we, we feel the called need to formally acknowledge and strategically kind of go on mission and participate in the movement. And when we go somewhere, and, and when individuals engage in a sensible starting point, and they proclaim the Word of God in a way that's kind of contextual and kind of amidst whatever light is there, and they they do it in a good way, this is what invariably happens. The Word of God is proclaimed, the enemy resists, and the Holy Spirit shows his power. That is just the pattern. The Word of God is proclaimed, Satan resists, there's resistance, there's a sense of resistance that rises from the enemy, and then the Holy Spirit prevails. And I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit i got to say this very carefully. Hear this right. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit always prevails in every circumstance. Right? I'm not saying that to the missionary in Morocco, that when resistance rises up, he just doesn't have to worry or, or that there's not a sense of trepidation uh, because the Holy Spirit will prevail. No, he actually might be martyred like at a particular level. I'm just saying in a general level, God's kingdom prevails. That the gates of hell cannot stand against the power of God. On particular things, there may be days that feel like wins and days that feel like losses. There may be great costs paid. But if God wants his word to be there, his holy word will prevail. 
It will persevere and it will triumph. And I think the call, the call of the church and the call of the missionary is to have a trust and a hope that God wins. That if we just trust and hope that God wins, we go to the right places and we do the right things. But there will invariably be resistance. We're foolish if we think that the movement of God is not anticipated and defended against by the enemy. There will be discouragement, but God wins. And the second, there's, there's another element that comes out of this text, that when, there is this, when this movement is afoot, and the word is being proclaimed, and there's resistance, and there's power, what ends up happening is that God calls and God works for the salvation of people that you may have no idea. God chooses, kind of, God has his own plan of who's going to hear the gospel. And this, to me, is such a fun thing to think about, that I have no idea who's going to like, actually hear the words of God. Our job is to be faithful in the proclamation of it and living out the power of the Spirit. But who hears? That's up to the Lord. I mean, think of Paul and Barnabas right now. They're on the island of Cyprus. They're, they're making their ministry route through the synagogues on the island, preaching in the synagogues, because it's a common starting point. And who wants to know? Who, by special invitation, says, hey, go get those guys. I want to hear. The most powerful Gentile Roman citizen on the entire island. The Pontius Pilate of Cyprus says, what? I want to hear what these guys have to say. Do you think in a million years Paul and Barnabas expected that? That at the end of this story their their signature convert would be the most prominent Gentile leader of the island who answers to Caesar. That's just cool. It's just cool. That we have in our heart, like the Lord puts in his heart, this, this gospel desire to talk about Jesus. That's what I'm saying. And in all of my imaginations, I have people's faces, I have names, I have things I, I want people to come, like Alpha, invite people Alpha. Like all of these things that maybe they'll come and maybe they'll hear and maybe they'll repent and turn and maybe they'll see the light and maybe they'll go closer. And God's saying, I love your energy, you have no clue. You have no clue who's going to come and who's going to hear. And it may be the greatest, biggest governor in the world, and it may be somebody who cleans, cleans up after my trash. I don't care. I'm just attracted to the fact that God's at work and he has a plan. right? And all the power to him for the way he, he lays these things out. We just don't know who will respond. And then finally there is this, this last verse. This is a curious verse. Just listen to how it's assembled. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. Makes you think, he saw the miracle and he believed. And then it says, for he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And you're like, so does he believe because of what happened or does he believe because he's amazed at the teaching of the Lord? And I think this is a powerful verse because a basic element of the movement is that the proclaimed word operates alongside of the work of the Spirit. You can proclaim the truth, but without the power of the Spirit, ah, you can have 
We can be the most charitable church, full of generosity, that can attract the hearts and minds of people. But if we do not proclaim the Holy Word in our, in our exercise of the Holy Spirit, they will be misled. You think this is an intelligent man, and yet kind of the crux of his conversion is not apologetics. You know, it isn't that Paul simply said, well, here, read Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis. Let me know what you think and, you know, email me on Facebook. That's not what happened. This is an intelligent man who's kind of listening to what Paul and Barnabas have to say about God, and then they see the power of the Holy Spirit kind of triumph over evil and and smite this man's sight. And it's the combination of those two things that bring him. In other words, we are wrong if in preparation for the movement we do not realize that the Holy Spirit has to have access and a channel to work which means you have to kind of relax and allow the Holy Spirit room. And you're wrong if you think that the the way to get the whole world saved is through bowls of soup and bags of grain. The Holy Word of God has to be spoken and heard and wrestled with and accepted and believed and repented to. They, They live in relationship. And this is the motherhood of the movement. The church builds missionaries. The Holy Spirit works to prompt and to send. The church recognizes formally and strategically and sends them on the movement. They go. They find a common starting point. They preach effectively at places that make sense in the light that's been given to them. And when that happens, people are drawn, and then there's resistance. But the Holy Spirit prevails because God is awesome. And then people come to know, not simply by what's been said, not simply by what's been done, but by what's been said and what's been done, because God is the same. The Holy Spirit and God are one. And that is, that's the motherhood of the movement of the church. We'll see it again and again in this book. It won't always be the same. It's the basic routine elements that kind of remain the same. We'll see it in this book. We'll see it in the history of the church. We've seen it in the history of our church. And we'll see it in the future. That's the movement of